Now, I welcome you if you are a visitor, especially if you're from the island of Skye or Lewis, and you're at a, a certain castle last night or Friday night. It's the end of an era, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're obviously not into Gaelic rock music. Um, but all the Runrig fans who are here, you're very welcome. Uh, also, uh, it's good to see Adrian Denier back with us just for a short while. Adrian, we know you're off to Ethiopia again. We pray for you and, uh, you know, really encourage in the work that you do. Uh, and uh, also, Ellie is here for her last Sunday, I believe. That is correct. She'll be here this evening. We'll say goodbye to you properly this evening, Ellie, but um, please do take an opportunity to, to say farewell to Ellie. And just as we have people leaving us and people coming and going, uh, so also we have uh, new people. And if you are new to this church, please do make yourself known. This um, it's a church is growing and developing, and uh, there's a lot, a lot of people. So uh, please don't go away from here saying nobody spoke to me unless you've tried to speak to someone. You have a just complaint if they turn your back on you, but you talk to someone because they, they, you might talk to someone who's new as well. So you're very, very welcome. Please stay for tea and coffee. And then this evening, please uh, do remember uh, the evening service at six o'clock. Sinclair is continuing to preach through uh, Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter one, verses one to seven. I love what Sinclair does. He announces he's preaching a prologue and then it ends up a series on the prologue. So we're still on the prologue, verses one to seven. Uh, it's absolutely fabulous. And I say this especially if you're a younger person. Uh, I honestly wish as a teenager that I had, I had heard this teaching and I just think it's absolutely marvelous. So if you can, please come this evening. But uh, also, just one other thing, a um, couple of other things, actually. Uh, last Sunday, I was asked a, a question that I think is really important, and please do feel free to ask questions. Um, and sometimes I, I, I'll answer them as I'm going to do just now. Somebody asked, how, how can God be eternal? Who made God? And we as Christians, those of us who are Christians, may assume that we know that, but how would you answer it? And let me just simply say this. If someone asks who made God, and they're asking who made the eternal God, the answer is nobody made God because God is eternal. It's like asking, why is that circle square? The question, in one sense, doesn't make sense. God is from the beginning and goes on forever. And he is the only person being that is like that. Now, that's hard to understand and hard to grasp, but it makes sense. You're going to have something that has no beginning, and we don't think that thing is a thing. We believe in a personal God, and this is the God we worship, the eternal God, and maybe there are many more things to say about that, but uh, I'll leave that for a particular sermon that I'm preparing on that. And then I do want to just show you uh, a short video about Creation Fest, which is uh, coming up. And I, I do want to say something about this. So just take a couple of seconds. Sorry about me being at the beginning. What would you think of the church in Dundee being a group of people united by love for God? A group of people eager to see the name of Jesus honoured and respected in our city. What would you think if people in the churches were to speak well of one another? If talk of churches celebrating together replaced talk of differences, conflicts and disappointments? What would you think if churches were united 
by a vision. A vision to cooperate willingly. To lift the name of Jesus high in the city of Dundee. Sharing the good news of Jesus together. Creation Fest Dundee is a united outreach event for all Dundee churches. It's an opportunity to grasp partnering as one church across the city. It's putting the rubber on the road of church unity and cooperation. To see the blessing of God commanded as brothers dwell together in unity. There will be a great lineup of bands, attractions, participating ministries and seminars. And it's going to be lots of fun. There's going to be opportunities to serve. We need everyone to pray. As well as the finance, we need volunteers and helpers. Join in by giving generously to the vision of churches working together in the city. Hey, you can get leaflets about that at the back. Can I encourage you to, to uh, take advantage of this? Uh, we often talk about evangelism and outreach, and this is open-air evangelism. It's going to be down outside the Caird Hall from the 20, on the 29th of September from 12 o'clock till 8 o'clock, and we really do need uh, lots of people involved with that. So if you'd like to volunteer to help, please talk to me, or better still, just go onto the website there, and you'll be able uh, to sign up for help. And if you want to know more about it, please ask me. But please do plan to be in the center of town on the 29th of September. Now, let's turn to God's Word, to Romans chapter 8. And uh, we're going to read from verse uh, 12, although we're going to look just from verses 14 to 17. Now, where we are in Romans 8 is that Paul is teaching us, the Holy Spirit is teaching us, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We've been set free by the, the Spirit who gives life. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. We've not to live according to the flesh. We have, we are in the realm of the Spirit, and those are the verses up to this point. And then at verse 12, we read this, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And then these words, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Well, let's look at these verses, and we are going to begin by looking just First of all, at verse 14, Fraser, if you could move on for that for me, please. Um, but we, it, the whole question of the Holy Spirit and the Word is something that divides Christians. So, for example, in this church, people say, oh, they're a church that's really for the Word, and we teach the Word. And some people will say, well, it's not very spiritual. And they, they will sometimes say, we don't sense the Spirit. And you might go to a church that, let's say, is, is more charismatic, and it's, people say, well, it's very spiritual. It's filled with the Spirit. But what do we mean by that? How do we understand that? And I think we have to be really, really careful when we make judgments about things. 
Sometimes you might go into a church and go, no, this is crazy. There's nothing of God here. And you could be wrong. And other times you can go in and it may seem very, very still and very quiet and people seem very unresponsive and yet God's Spirit could really be at work. So we need to be careful about making judgments. We also need to be careful in terms of ourselves, as, as we'll see when we talk about being led by the Spirit. Now, I watched a, a little bit on the news this week where they have a humanist chaplain who's been put in charge of, a, of an NHS hospital in England, and she was talking about how you can be spiritual without God. Well, you can't. You can like poetry without God, and you can listen to music without God, and you can appreciate a sunset without God. Actually, you can't really, because they all come from God. But that, without being a believer, you can do that. But can you be spiritual? And the answer is no. Not in the sense that the Bible means spiritual. Jesus talked about a time was coming when God would look for those who would worship him in spirit and truth, not just in the temple in Jerusalem but would worship him in spirit and truth. So what does it mean to worship in the spirit? Does it mean that you're in an ecstasy? Does it mean that you know, you're swaying? Does it mean you know, you're, you're raising your hands? Uh, I read an article, it was a spoof article, about how the uh, bits in the Bible that talk about lifting holy hands in prayer, well, exegetically, it doesn't really mean that. It means put your hands deep in your pockets. Um, that's not true. It does mean lift holy hands in prayer. But sometimes people judge by the outward gesture whether that's worshiping in the spirit. And it's not that our bodies are unimportant, but that you cannot define worshiping in the spirit in that way. So for me, this is, this is a hugely important passage and a hugely important teaching. Because also, it's also tied in with how do we know? How do we know what's true? How do we know what's right? How do we know what's real? How do we know which church we should go to? How, how do we know what we should do with our lives? How do we know? How do we know which religion to follow, if any at all? Well, the answers are in these verses. So let's just begin with this verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. What does that mean? Does that mean when you're led by the Spirit of God, that it's God telling you everything you're supposed to do? You get up in the morning, Lord, what should I have for breakfast? And God shows you the cornflakes packet or whatever. No, that you, you go out the door. Should I turn to the right or should I turn to the left? Who am I going to meet? What should I say? Is that what we mean by being led by the Spirit? That's not the case at all. And indeed, when people come on, on more serious issues and say, God has told me this, and God has told me that, you have to be really wary. So there's a wonderful lady called Joni Erickson. Sinclair knows her well, and many of you will know her story. Well, she had nine men, after she became severely disabled, who came up to her and told her, God has told me that I have to marry you. Well, at least eight of them were wrong. You know, I mean, how, what do you do with that? I mean, what would you do if you're a young lady here and a guy comes up and says, God's told me I should go out with you? I'll tell you what you do. You say, when he tells me, I will, uh, and then just leave it. But sometimes people use the phrase, God has told me, as a way to manipulate and as a way to, to 
express perhaps their own feelings. So what do we mean by that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God? Well, you just go back because it's got the word for, those who are led. We've been told we've not to live according to the flesh, but live according to the Spirit. So what this is really saying is that the leading of the Spirit leads us into holiness. And God the Holy Spirit does not come and he's, he doesn't give us a set of instructions about everything that we're supposed to do. It's an influence within our life that comes through the word that he has given. So Galatians 5.18 says, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And what that was saying is that we're not under the Mosaic law anymore because God, through Jesus, has given us his Holy Spirit. And this leading by the Spirit is, first of all, being led to Christ. It's being led to confess our sins. And then it's being led to worship with his people. It's being led to live Christian lives. It's not forceful. Although the, the language itself is very strong, it's not forceful. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, who took, I think, eight sermons on these couple of verses, uh, went on for a long, long time. He argues that there's no violence in Christianity. What the Holy Spirit does is enlighten and persuade. In fact, in one of the most puzzling verses in the whole Bible for me, where it says that God's Holy Spirit, who is God, can be grieved by you and by me, indicates what I would call the gentleness of the Spirit. And I think that that is in, in, in line with this idea of the Spirit leading. Yes, God is God and God is sovereign and the Holy Spirit can give you a vision. And the Holy Spirit can do what he did with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Lift him up and take him. The Holy Spirit can do that. God can do that. We never ever limit God. But do not expect God to come and tell you directly who you should marry, what job you should do, and everything else. That's not how it normally works. Sometimes in my life, I have believed, I have felt very strongly that I've been guided by the Spirit to do certain things. And I think sometimes that was right. But the time I felt strongest that I was being guided by the Spirit turned out to be wrong. So you have to be really, really careful, really careful in attributing what you feel and what you think and what you've dreamt to the guidance of the Spirit. I think the most that any one of us can say is, I believe that or even I feel that or I think that this is the direction that God is guiding me. Now, those of you who like absolute certainty, that's, that's not a good thing. But I think there is absolute certainty. I think it's found in Christ and it's found in his word and it's found in all the principles that are there. I do believe that the Holy Spirit is at work and that he guides and changes and so on. And sometimes in this church, we're not good at acknowledging that. We have to say that. Sometimes everything's dry and very intellectual. And that's wrong. We need to recognize sometimes you can, you can sense God's Spirit at work. Now, your, your sense might be wrong, so you can't go by that. But sometimes you're just so conscious. I remember up in Brora, one man who worked in an oil rig, and uh, he was not 
a Christian at the time, and he came to the prayer meeting, and the bus was due to take him down to, to um, the rig. And he, he was in the prayer meeting, and he was greatly struck by what was going on, and he, want, he, he went to, to get up and go and catch his bus. He couldn't move. He was absolutely stuck. He could not move. And it was absolutely the Spirit working in his life. He is now a, a deacon in that congregation. So please don't limit the Spirit of God. And by the way, people who are charismatics also limit the Spirit of God. I know they deny that, but they do because they say he's going to work in this way and that way. I was in a church once that I still can't believe this is true, but it, I, I didn't dream it. It really did happen. And I asked, what are the white lines? There was a white line there and 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 a white line there. I said, what are the white lines for? And you know what the pastor told me? He said, so that when people are slain in the spirit, they fall over in decency and order. So the white lines were for you to fall over on when you're slain in the spirit. And I thought, if you're slain in the spirit, you're going to fall. You know, the, the whole language, the whole jargon. I just thought, no, this is wrong. There's a, there's a, almost a controlling aspect that people have that we use the Spirit like some kind of Star Wars force. But he's not. He is the Holy Spirit of God and he will work as he pleases. And he will work as he pleases because it's according to his word. And that's what's important. So you're led by the Spirit of God means that that there's this divine influence on your life because of Jesus through the word. It does not mean that you have a hotline to God kind of whispering into your ear, now go there, do this, do that. That's not how Christianity works. When we're led by the Spirit as well, we have to obey. So we just sang in Psalm 106, they rebelled against the Spirit of God. And that's a a dreadful thing to do. You know, some of you think, that in condemning particular things in a church or in particular people or going what you, against what you don't like, sometimes what you're actually doing is rebelling against the Spirit of God. The Spirit reveals things. I, I don't think this is a wrong fear. I do have a fear of quenching the Spirit and a fear of um, suppressing in, in, in different ways. And I think that's a right thing to do. We need to go where the Spirit leads, but we need to be very careful not to attribute ours or other people's instincts or thoughts to the leading of the Spirit. You're so much safer, and rightly so, when you come to the Word of God. So the Spirit leads us. Let's go on to verses, uh, verse 15. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit adopts. We're taken from slavery and fear into freedom. Slavery meant being owned by a Lord. It meant having a servile spirit. How is it that so many leaders in churches have been able to get away with uh, abuse because they've built a culture of fear. I don't just mean sexual abuse, I mean spiritual abuse and other kinds of abuse, but they built a culture of fear around them. And that should not be 
within the Christian church. There's a right fear, a holy fear of God. But this servile fear, that's not part of being Christian. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Instead, we are adopted to sonship. And the term son of God there is a biblical title for the people of God. It applies to the daughters of God as well. But we are sons or daughters. Now, adoption, we think we understand what adoption is. What's interesting in this passage is that the idea of adoption was not there in Jewish law. It doesn't come from the Old Testament even. The idea of adoption that Paul picks up on and uses is a Roman legal term. And uh, I think the NIV is right to translate it adoption to sonship. It is one word. It, could, it can mean sonship. But it is, it is that term that Paul's lifted from a legal institution whereby you would adopt a child and confer on that child all the rights and privileges of the natural child. Usually, an adopted child was deliberately chosen to perpetuate the name and estate of the father. And so what Paul is doing here is he's setting up a contrast. He's saying, you were slaves. You, you, you were owed nothing and you owed everything. And now you've been made children. And you'll go on to say about what being an heir is. And it's an image that, that Paul actually, it's a, a teaching that Paul loves in Galatians 4. He says this, what I'm saying is as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but God's child. And since you are a child, God has made you also an heir. You know, if anyone here is adopted, sometimes there's a stigma that goes with that. And I think it's wrong. I think it's a wrong stigma. I think if you're adopted... And you might say to your parents who've adopted you, eventually, I'm adopted. Does that mean that you don't love me as much as you would, you know, normal children? Because I'm not normal, because I'm adopted. Do you know what the answer to that is? The answer is, I chose you. I chose you. You're my child. And that's what God has done with us. We are not naturally the children of God, because we have rebelled and turned against him. And then what Paul is saying here is, through the gospel... Through coming to believe through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, it's the, the Spirit brings about your adoption to sonship, to being a child of God. When the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And that's a wonderful thing, because you may be incredibly alone. You may have had incredibly disruptive relationships in your life. 
You may struggle with so many different things. You may have a sense of complete unworthiness. And you may say, I am not worthy. I am just not worthy. And God adopts us. God sends his spirit and adopts us. He makes us worthy. And so the spirit is called the spirit of sonship and the spirit whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You can read this two ways. It's either we cry, Abba, Father, and that's the spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we're the children of God, or the spirit comes into us and enables us to cry, Abba, Father. To me, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. They're both really the same thing. Abba, what does that mean? Why, why is it used in this sense? Because it's very hard to get an, an actual English translation. It means dad or papa, if you like. It's the Roman father, by the way, was still an awesome figure. If you're a father in, in Rome, you had the right to put your children to death if you wish legally. Not that many did. There was a fear there, but there was also an intimacy. Some argue that the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus teaches us to pray our Father in heaven, that in Aramaic it would be Abba. And he was teaching his disciples to do that. What I, I find intriguing about this, uh, somebody wrote this and it took me a while to think about it, but I, I really appreciated this. The Spirit does not cause us to first of all cry, I am God's son or I am God's daughter. The Spirit causes us to cry, God is my father. You're my dad. You're my father. See, I think sometimes when we put the emphasis on ourselves, we keep looking at where we're at and who we are and everything. And the focus isn't that here. And I don't think the focus of that should ever be that. I think the focus is that we can call God Father. This is how Jesus addressed God. Mark 14, 35 in the garden. He going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is not a term that any Jew would have used of God. They would have used the term Father, but not this term. It's too intimate. Now, I think there's a mistake made here as well, because I, I, I understand what people are trying to do, but I think it's wrong. I think what people are, when they try and say, well, look, it's just like baby talk, and we talk to God in baby talk, and, and you know, they justify almost a, a lack of reverence, which I don't think is what is trying to be taught here. It's really more the intimacy combined with the awe. And I here, the, the, the use of the word cry is such a strong one. It can, it could, you, could, you could translate it, shriek. You cry out. And you know what I, I think it is, especially from Gethsemane, Jesus in Gethsemane. I think it's when a child is in absolute despair or absolute terror and cries out, Dad! Dad! And we're being told here that as we, if we come to know Jesus, we've been given the Spirit which enables us to cry out, Dad! To God. To Almighty God. 
It's an extraordinary teaching. It's an extraordinary um, intimacy. Jesus doing it in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was in absolute agony preparing to go to the cross is one thing. But you doing it and me doing it, how? How can we do that? I'll tell you how. Because we've been adopted as children, as sons and daughters of God. And so he's the one who takes away the fear and he's the one who brings us close to God. Paul contrasts this, 1 Corinthians 2.12. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given. God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. You want to do things in your own strength. You want to do things in, in how you perceive yourself, and then you, you project that onto God, and you project that onto other things. This is telling you the opposite. This is telling you God has given you his spirit. And no matter what your circumstances, no matter what your psychology, no matter how messed up you are, you belong to Jesus. You can call out Abba, Father, as Jesus did with his own father. I don't know if there's a doctrine that's so lightly treated and taught as though it was just for kids in Sunday school. It is for them. But I don't know if there's a doctrine that's so lightly treated and so misunderstood as the fatherhood of God and what that practically means to us. Just think about that. I mean, um, I love it when, you know, being a, being a granddad's great. Uh, by the way, it just it is. It's brilliant because you've got all the joys and none of the hassles. Because uh, when the hassles come, you just say, right, it's yours. On you go. Um, but there's one of the things I love about we Finley. Andrew and Karen's one. See, when his dad walks into the room, he just breaks into a massive grin. Why? It's his dad. He knows that. Well, you see, that's how we, that's our relationship with God. That's what, that's what it means to be spirit-filled. It means to trust and rely on God as our father. So when the devil comes and says, you know, your dad, he's a bad guy. I say, no, I know my dad. He's my dad. But one thing I'm absolutely certain of is my dad. As a a small child, you're you're certain of so few things. But the one thing you're certain of in in that kind of positive relationship is your dad. And that's what we have. Then verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. What does that mean? Well, I think Romans 5, 5, God's love has been, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I'm conscious of time, so I won't be able to go into this, but Lloyd-Jones, amongst many other people, argues quite strongly that here refers to a special anointing, even a baptism of the Spirit, that it's, a, it's, a, it's an experience beyond just becoming a Christian. It's a special testimony of the Holy Spirit, and and Lloyd-Jones is able to give numerous testimonies from history about that. And I have a great deal of sympathy with that. There are times in our lives when we are deeply conscious of God's Spirit at work within us, and things just seem so different. You know, and again, please don't ever, ever despise those experiences. There are times in my life, normal times for me, where praying for five minutes seems like an eternity. 
But occasionally, I've had times where you've been praying all night, and it seemed like five minutes. Very, very rare, but it's wonderful when that happens. So I'd, I, I would not dispute that God can and does work in that way. But I'm not sure that's what's being taught here. I'm not sure this is being taught an extra experience because earlier on he said, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to God. And Paul here is teaching assurance for all Christians, not just for a special group. First John 5, 7, there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. How does the Spirit then testify with our spirit that we are God's children? I'll tell you how. Because when you hear God's word, you accept it as God's word. You know that this is not the preacher just speaking. You know that this is not just clever theory or, or dumb stories. You know that this is God's word. When you hear about Jesus on the cross, when you hear Jesus speaking through his word, his sheep hear his voice. Why do you believe? Why do you feel that? Why can you honestly say, in Christ alone, my hope is found? It's not because you're smart. It's not because you've worked it out. It's not because you've put two and two together and got it sorted. It's not because of what you have done. It's because God's spirit is working in your life. For some people, it's very dramatic, very dramatic. I remember uh, seeing a woman in front of me once and her whole complexion and physique seemed to change as the spirit worked in her life and she came to believe in Jesus. That's probably the most dramatic I've ever seen. But for most of us, it's not like that. It's the spirit gently persuading and changing and moving us. So we find ourselves in a position where whereas once we couldn't look at a Bible without feeling bored, we want more. We want more of Jesus. We find ourselves, our hearts strangely warmed. We find ourselves becoming incredibly emotional. And not because we've been manipulated, but because we see the truth. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's why I hate missing even one service on a Sunday, not because I'm a preacher, not because it's my job, but because I want to hear about Jesus and because there's nothing encourages and assures me more than having Christ speak through his word. And then let's just do the the last verse. Verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share with his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Uh, we We could spend a long, long time on this, but we won't. What do we actually inherit? If you're an heir, what do you actually inherit? You know, I feel a bit embarrassed to say to my kids, like, when I'm gone, you're going to inherit all that I've got. And they're going to look and go, yeah, thanks, Dad. Uh, You know, but what do we actually inherit? We inherit God. That's the the, the great thing. 
First Peter 1.11, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of God in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. There's a glory that follows. There's something that we are heir of that we've only got a taste of in this life. I had to mention them this week, but Runrig have a song, Hearts of Olden Glory. And we often think about glories as in past glories. I remember the good old days. In, in, for the Christian, it's always future glory. So I want to look at what we share in that. We share in his sufferings. That's the bit, you know, this is all wonderful stuff. We call God our Father, Abba, and then we share in his sufferings. And we kind of go, oh, that's a shame, isn't it? No, it's not. I'll tell you why it's not a shame. Because if you are suffering, this is wonderful. This is absolutely wonderful if you are suffering. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. For, for him. Philippians 1.29 For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.5 We share abundantly. In the sufferings of Christ. See, when people talk about abundant Christian living, I bet you they don't mean that. We share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. How is that possible? How, how, how without being the most masochistic, sadistic type people, could we rejoice at sharing in the sufferings of Christ? Because suffering is the indispensable prelude to glory. So in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says this, Our outward nature is wasting away. Except that's not what he says. He says, though our outward nature is wasting away, yet our inward nature is being renewed every day. The very things which are causing us so much distress are the things which lead to so much glory. The new person is fully formed after the image of Christ. So none of us, the point about suffering is none of us like it. And it's ugly and it's horrible and it's distressing and it's depressing and we would run away from it and we would be just like Jesus saying, Father, take this cup. But when you are going through suffering, hold on absolutely to this. The glory has not yet been revealed. And your suffering, even at its most intense, will be, as Paul puts it, light and momentary. Light and momentary. See, that's why it's a mistake in the church to keep saying to people, right, we're going to help you deal with this problem and that problem. Here's a solution for that problem and that problem. It's not wrong to do that, but it's wrong to emphasize that as the main thing when the main thing is to show people the glory of Christ because then no matter what we suffer, it's light and momentary. 1 Peter 4.12, we share in his glory. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may, may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. 2 Corinthians 4.10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. It's an extraordinary thing to be a Christian 
Because it's not that you're free from illness. It's not that you're free from suffering. It's not that you're free from depression. It's not that you're free from mental health worries. It's not that you're free from all the troubles in this world. It's that they're all set in a different context. And that you have the spirit within you who, who cries out, Abba, Father. And you are able to share in his sufferings so that you can share in his glory. Now, none of us look for suffering. And by the way, Jesus did not look for suffering. We don't look for it. But when it happens, it shouldn't shock us and surprise us and have us go around and say, oh, I can't believe in God because... Actually, this is the very thing he said would happen. But he's in charge. He's in control. He knows what's happening. Calvin says this, It is the design of Paul highly to extol this inheritance promised to us that we may be content with it and manfully despise the allurements of the world and patiently bear whatever troubles may press on us in this life. My eyes have seen the glory. And once you've seen the glory, you can't live for anything else. All this world's glories are passing and fading. Do you know, I, I absolutely love Runrig uh, and their music, so much part of my life, especially when I was at university. And, you know, you kind of think they've been around forever, go on forever and I guess at 70 years old plus, which is amazing to me that they are that. They think, okay, this is the farewell concert. They're not going to be continually having farewell concerts. But it just reminds you, it's all passing. Everything is passing and fading, except this. And so we have a contrast. On the one side, there's bondage, worldliness, and fear. There's slavery. And on the other the sonship, daughtership, if you like. There are spiritual gifts, power, love. There's sanctified common sense. That's what the Spirit of God being in us actually means. Psalm 73, the psalmist says this, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In the distance, day is dawning, comes to me the early morning. Something tells me that I'm going home. Sometimes I've had the privilege of watching a believer die who knew that they were going home. And there is nothing confirms your faith almost more than that. To see them, sometimes in pain, but to see them with this, this not resignation. It's not a resignation. It's, a, it's an anticipation. It's a joy. It, it's, I'm so sorry to be leaving you, but I'm going home. That's what the Christian has. That's what the Spirit of God 
gives us. That's why we're free. That's why we're not slaves. That's why we can go to work tomorrow and it might be just a crummy job. We may not like our bosses and all the rest of it, but we don't care what they do because eventually we're going home. That's why when you go to the doctor tomorrow and he says, I've got bad news, you will be distressed, but you're going home. That's why when you're burdened with many, many, many things and outwardly you're wasting away, yet inwardly you are renewed day by day because you are led by the Spirit of God, because you're a child of God, because you're co-heirs with Christ, because you share in his sufferings in order that you may share in his glory, because you've been adopted as his child, and because of that you cry, Dad, Abba, Father, help me. And you know that just as no father turns away from their child, our Heavenly Father will never ever turn away from us. And next week, or not next week, in a couple of weeks' time, Paul then goes on to explain why that's the case and what that means. And he just keeps building it and building it. But what a wonderful thing to know that you are the son of God, that you are the daughter of God. If you're not, come to know him. If you are, come to know him better. Let's pray. Oh, Lord... The Spirit, your Spirit, testifies through the Word of the truth of the Gospel and that we are your children as we believe in Jesus. Grant that this would be true of each and every one of us. And for those of us who are bound by a spirit of fear and who think of ourselves as slaves, help us, O Lord, to cry out to you, Abba, Father, in your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing the song, Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life in you, that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. Let's stand and sing, and please remain standing for the benediction. <laughs>